Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Happy Mother's Day. Through the years, sometimes I speak on mothers on Mother's Day. This morning, I'm not. Uh, Mother's Day is kind of a mixed bag for some people, isn't it? Uh, while I think most of our mothers are wonderful human beings that do their best to, uh, to raise their kids in a godly home, uh, some have experienced a home that was shattered, one that uh, maybe the mother um, was not uh, someone of, of honor and uh, respect, unfortunately, because of the way that they uh, acted. Some wish to be mothers and, and are not able to be. Um, some are foster parents and, and things of that nature. Um, there, there's just a, a lot of different emotions that surround this holiday, and uh, some of you may have uh, experienced the loss of your mother recently, and so you're trying to work your way through that. After we lose a loved one, in this case our mother, there's always a first something, right? So the first Mother's Day without them, the first Christmas, Thanksgiving, all those kind of things. And so I want to wish our mothers a happy Mother's Day, but also I want you to know we're praying for those who have lost mothers recently or those that may not have had the ideal situation with a mother growing up. But this morning, we're talking about spiritual warfare. It's a new series that we started last Sunday night and will continue for the next several weeks. You know, the story is told of a famous chess champion that decided to go on vacation to Europe. And because this chess champion was an art enthusiast, he visited one of the art galleries there in Europe. And as he was walking by looking at all the uh, masterpieces that were displayed, he saw this one painting. This one painting caught his eye. And it was a chessboard with the devil sitting on one side, laughing hysterically. And on the other side of the board was a very nervous young man. Sweat pouring off his forehead, tears streaming down his face, biting his fingernails. It became clear what this painting was depicting, especially when you read the title of it, which was called Checkmate. The devil was about to win a chess match for the soul of this young man. And the chess champion studied this painting for, for several minutes. And finally, he went and he asked the proprietor of the art gallery if he had a chessboard. And the proprietor, proprietor said, yes, in fact, I do. So he brought him a chessboard, and the chess champion set up a chessboard in front of that painting, and he put all the pieces in the same spots that they were placed on the chessboard in the painting. And he, he looked at the chessboard, and he looked up at the painting, he looked at the chessboard, he looked at the painting, he did this for several minutes, and he started laughing. And then he started carrying on a conversation with the young man in the picture. He said, oh, if you only knew. He said, there's one more move on the chessboard, young man, and you get to make it. He wasn't a loser at all. In fact, he had a chance to win. So he could wipe the sweat from his forehead. He could dry the tears from his eyes. And he could take his fingers out of his mouth because there was one more move on the chessboard. And he got to make it. I think there are far too many Christians who have been duped into believing that the devil is in control of the chessboard. I think there are far too many Christians who believe that the devil is in control and we are merely puppets. 
Many have been duped into thinking that he has the final move, but listen to me. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is one more move on the chessboard, and guess what? You get to make it. You know, I was reading an article recently. It was published back in 2018, and the headline caught my attention. It read like this. The U.S. military is now recruiting soldiers to fight in a war that started before they were born. And the article goes on to state, as the war in Afghanistan enters its 18th year and the U.S. Army falls thousands short of recruiting goals, the Pentagon is recognizing it has to do something different to recruit an age group that does not remember 9-11 and for whom the war on terror has been background noise their entire lives. And the article goes on to state, and I quote, Most Americans are only vaguely aware that we're still fighting overseas, and the reason for that is that they don't have any skin in the game. In other words, it's extremely difficult to recruit soldiers to fight in a war that they don't care anything about. And that's what the U.S. Army was facing. There has to be some personal buy-in. It has to hit close to home, and yet there are many Christians that don't see the urgency and the gravity of the battle at hand. Whether you want to recognize it or not, whether you care or not, we have all been thrust in the middle of a battle. This is spiritual warfare. And some people are losing because they won't acknowledge it. You know, we don't always take the enemy seriously, do we? You know, we, we, we sometimes turn the devil into nothing more than a cute little caricature. We've turned him into a cartoon, right? He's this harmless little guy that has a long tail and horns and wears a red suit and, and carries a pitchfork. He's so adorable that we paste his picture on, you know, on, on t-shirts and sweatshirts. You know, we, we almost look at it as it's, it's cute. It's funny to be naughty. You have your sports teams, whether it's the Red Devils, the Blue Devils, or, or the Sun Devils. You know, it just reemphasizes that Satan is not someone that is to be fought or feared, but rather someone to be cheered for or against. We have diminished this spiritual war by diluting the enemy. One of the oldest books on military strategy is The Art of War. It was written in the 6th century B.C. by Sun Tzu, and it is said to have inspired Napoleon. Douglas MacArthur took inspiration from the book. It's said to have been used in the planning of Operation Desert Storm. And among the many insights that are given throughout the book, one that I found particularly interesting was this one. So it is said that if you know your enemies and know yourself, you will fight without danger in battles. If you only know yourself, but not your opponent, you may win or may lose. If you know neither yourself nor your enemy, you will always endanger yourself. We must know the enemy, his schemes, his tactics, his objective. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to frame the fight. We're going to look at the tail of the tape as we face off against this formidable foe. And I want you to start with me in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, beginning of verse 7, this is what we read. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels, waging war with the dragon. 
The dragon and his angels waged war, and they did not prevail, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, at some point, there was a rebellion in heaven where Satan and his evil angels were cast down out of heaven to this earth. Now that brings up a question, doesn't it? And the question being, if Satan is an evil angel who was once in heaven, does that mean that at some point he was good? If not, then that brings up another question. Did God create evil? Well, it must be noted that Satan is not deity, because deity cannot be restrained, and deity is all-powerful. Satan was created. Was he created evil? Well, we know that God made all things to be good out of the goodness of his heart. He created every living creature, everything. He said, it is good after the creation. It is good. It is good. To create evil would mean that there is a certain amount of darkness in God, and therefore he would not be infinitely and perfectly holy, pure, and good. I don't think that God can be responsible for creating evil because out of the essentialness of his being, he only creates good. God has granted us one of the greatest gifts that he could ever give, and that is the gift of free will. He created us with choice, but when one chooses not to follow him and thus chooses to rebel against the creator then God can't be blamed for that. God is not morally culpable if the gift of choice is abused. And evil is a choice that we make. Evil exists because of the abuse of free will. So Satan corrupted himself. And I want you to notice what Paul writes under the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. So Paul indicates that Satan was responsible for his own downfall, and the root of that downfall was pride. So, what about this revolt in heaven? Well, the Bible does not give us a single detailed account of this event. However, we do have some passages that shed some light on this. One of those being 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness held for judgment. Then you go to Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling place, these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, some versions use the word principality here instead of domain. And that word simply means, uh, it's arche, by the way, in, in the Greek. And it means a sphere of activity, an office, or a place of rule. So apparently there were levels of authority among the angels. For example, we know that there were archangels. We know about the cherubim and the seraphim. It appears that some of the angels were offended or disliked their appointed position, and they sought a higher one. Hence, they revolted against their appointment. And as a result, they were cast down. And Peter indicates that they had to be restrained in a state of punishment until that great day of judgment. 
I think through these passages, and there's some others, but I think through these passages, we can kind of piece together an image of Satan and what happened and why he was cast down to this earth while he fell out of the good graces of God because he chose to rebel. But here's the deal. God made his first move when he created the angels. There was rebellion in heaven, as we just said, and Satan and his angels were removed from God's presence. Then God countered that move by creating Adam and Eve and placing them in the garden. Satan countered that move by enticing them to eat from the wrong menu and thus be exiled from the garden. But God countered that move by allowing Adam and Eve to live, albeit outside of paradise, but that would kickstart God's redemptive plan. Of course, Satan countered that move by enticing Cain to commit the first murder in history, killing his brother Abel, but God countered that move through the birth of Seth so that men began to call on the name of the Lord again. Then Satan countered that move through the birth of Nimrod, who built the nations of Babylon and Assyria, who rebelled against God. Of course, God countered that move by calling Abraham to be the father of nations. Satan countered that move by Egyptian slavery. God countered that move by raising up Moses to be a deliverer to lead the people out of captivity and towards a land flowing with milk and honey. Have you noticed this theme over and over again in the Old Testament? Move, counter move, move, counter move. And then we get to a point for hundreds of years where there's silence. It's as if the two opponents are just staring at the board. Nothing's really happening. And then the New Testament opens with God basically saying, you know what, I'll just come down there and fix the mess myself. Of course, we know that Jesus was part of the plan all along, and Satan tried to counter that move by what? By tempting him in the wilderness. And of course, God countered that move by Jesus, God in the flesh, refusing to allow Satan to be the loudest voice in his life. Over and over again, he responds to Satan with, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then Satan counters that move by filling the religious leaders' hearts with maliciousness, eventually leading to Jesus being hung on a cross. And God countered that move with an empty tomb, with the resurrection. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, listen to this. That move is your move. That move is your move to make. Life is a test. And unfortunately, many people are failing the test. I have people come into my office in 20 plus years of ministry. I've had people come in. People come in that were thinking about leaving their family because they thought they'd be happy over here with another man or another woman. I said, you're losing. That's a loser's mentality. You don't win that way. Life is a test and you're failing it. I have people come into my office and and, and they talk about how they're just dissatisfied with their relationship with God and the shimmer and shine of the world is, is just more luxurious for them and they want to move towards that. And I said, that's a loser's mentality. You don't win that way. I've known of people who gave up God as first priority 
and chose to put other things above him, whatever it may be. You know, we have a lot of American idols, right? You know, money and, and, and work and whatever it may be. And I tried to tell them, and it's the hardest thing I do as a minister, is to try to tell them, look, life's a test, and you're losing. You don't want to lose here. Don't have a loser's mentality. Because you know how that all plays out, right? Ask Judas. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. Ask Satan. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, for the most part, we have this pretty sanitized view of church and Christianity. We come to worship. We live a moral life. We visit the sick. We take meals to those who have lost a loved one. All good things. But at some point, we have to go beyond that and understand that there is a bigger battle happening. That it's not just about trying to live a good life and read your Bible every day and come to church. This is spiritual warfare. This is the fight of our lives. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you want to be involved or not. This is the fight of our lives and your soul is at stake. You know, every morning a gazelle and a lion get up to run. For different reasons, right? They both run, but for a different purpose. The gazelle runs to keep from being the lion's lunch. The lion runs so that he can have the lunch. Either one of them, if they stop, they're in danger. If the gazelle stops running, he becomes the lion's lunch. If the lion stops running, he risks starvation. We've got to keep running. Satan's going to keep running. You can't afford to stop. You can't afford to sit. You can't afford to rest now. In the book of Numbers chapter 32, we find that the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad are requesting that Moses give them the land east of the Jordan. Now, the Reubenites and the Gadites were tribes that had a lot of livestock, and they felt that the land of Jazer and Gilead would be perfect for them to settle in and, uh, and let their livestock graze, and that, that could be the place where they made their home. So they ask that this land be given to them. And as a result, they would not be led over the Jordan River to fight with Israel. And Moses is greatly disappointed with their request. Listen to what he says. Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Moses says, you're telling me that you're going to plop down right here? That you're not even going to go fight with your brothers? The only reason this land was available to you is because of the fighting that occurred up to this point, right? Moses felt that by them staying behind, they would be discouraging others like, you know, the ten spies did when they spied out the land and came back with the discouraging report. That aroused God's wrath against them. And in essence, Moses says that they would destroy God's people by sitting. And notice what is written in verses 7 through 15. It says, Now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? 
This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day. And he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. For they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So, 40 years until, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now, behold, You have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. We can have this uh, cauterized, sanitized view of Christianity and the church and, and believe that our existence is about living good moral lives as far as we're able to. Uh, You know, we stop at all traffic lights. We obey all the laws. We come to church every time the doors are open. We read our Bible on occasion. We say our prayers. But it's about more than that. It's not less than that, but it's about more than that, isn't it? There is a war that is raging. Like Israel, we are at war and we must fight. But we don't fight it alone. In fact, we can't. We need God on our side. We need the church on our side. And many soldiers of the past have fought valiantly to bring us to this point in time. To know the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. To worship our Lord in spirit and in truth. And to enjoy the blessings of being in God's family. But the war rages on. And we must continue to fight the good fight. We can't rest now. We cannot sit We've got to fight. When Reuben and Gad realized the consequences of sitting while their brethren went to war, they immediately made arrangements to get involved in the battle. May we all consider the consequences of sitting. You've heard quitters never win? Well, sitters never win. I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 6. This is a passage that we are going to look at Uh, over the next few weeks, many, many times, especially on Sunday nights, we're going to take each element of uh, of the armor of God and look at each of them individually. But in the mornings on Sundays, we're going to look more at an overall scope of this battle. So you'll hear this passage a lot. Let's look at it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now understand, Paul is not stirring up the people to revolt against the emperor. That's not what he's doing. Caesar wasn't the enemy because flesh and blood is not the enemy. People are never the enemy. The enemy is unseen. Paul makes it very clear, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle, not a physical one, and our ultimate enemy is invisible. He cannot be seen, he cannot be felt, he cannot be touched. His armies are in the spiritual realm. For some, that just seems a little too mystical, but you better get over that. 
Many folks, many Christians, in fact, have a hard time acknowledging that there is a devil and demons and the forces of evil, but spiritual warfare is something that is thrust upon us, whether we like it or not, whether we choose to believe in it or not. That has no bearing on the fact that we're in a battle. I love how C.S. Lewis states it in the screw tape letters. He says, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch and every split second are claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So the sooner we recognize that a battle is raging, the sooner we recognize that this is the fight of our lives, the better equipped we become to do something about it. And when it comes to doing something about it, I want to set forth a principle that we're going to carry out with us the rest of this series a principle that will hopefully help us as we frame the fight. And it's this. The devil operates by consent and cooperation. Understand that. He's not deity. He has no control or authority over your life unless you give it to him. This whole idea that the devil made me do it has never been true and never will be true. He has no authority unless you give it to him. He needs permission to bring hell into your life, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did, right? They let the voice of Satan be the loudest in their life. They gave him consent and cooperation, and he ruined their paradise. The devil has a lot of control. The devil is formidable, but he only has the authority that we give him. He needs a vehicle. He needs a carrier, so don't be one. He operates by consent and cooperation, so don't give it to him. You know, the opposite of Adam and Eve is Jesus Christ. As we said a moment ago, after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness where he is tested. Three times, Satan tests him, and each time, Jesus passes the test by allowing the voice of God to be the loudest in his life. You notice that? He allowed God's voice to be the loudest in his life. It is written, he said, on every occasion. Jesus defaulted to God. And as a result, Satan couldn't use him as a vehicle. Understand, Satan didn't force him to turn those stones into bread. Satan didn't push him off the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan couldn't force him to bow down to him. Because he has no power or authority over God or Jesus or even you unless you give it to him. So don't be a vehicle. Don't be a carrier for Satan. You know, just hours before the airstrikes on Baghdad, then-President George W. Bush called all of his military leaders and commanders together. And after they briefed him, he asked them one question. One question. He looked all of them in the eye and he asked, Do you have everything you need to win? And they all responded, yes, Mr. President. My friends, the Bible is crystal clear. We have everything we need to win. There's one more move left on the board. You get to make it. So, what are you going to do with that move? Can we help you this morning? 
Do you need the prayers of this church family? Are you losing this battle? You know, the great thing about this, this whole life is a test thing is that, that God allows you to, to do U-turns. That you don't have to remain a failure. Failure doesn't have to be fatal. There is an answer, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. So that if we can help you this morning, if you're ready to study the Bible, if you're ready to begin your daily walk with God and ready to put on Christ in baptism, let us help you. But you have no excuse today to walk out of here a loser. Come as we stand and as we sing.